You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. The genius of social justice movements, whether it's the women's movement, the black movement, the Hispanic movement, the gay movement, whatever the movement is, the genius of it comes from people letting others know that you can do it. Together we can support each other and we can make it happen. Feminist and co-founder of Ms. Magazine, Gloria Steinem. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Ms. is turning 50. It was in December of 1971 that a writer for The New Yorker named Gloria Steinem launched what would become that landmark magazine. The first issue of Ms. was actually an insert in The New Yorker. It would begin publishing on its own the following July, and it would establish Gloria Steinem at the forefront of the feminist movement. Now fast forward to 1992 when Gloria Steinem wrote what would become a best-selling book called The Revolution Within. And that's when she and I had one of our several conversations over the years. So here now from 1992, Gloria Steinem. Well, when it started out a number of years ago, perhaps five or six years ago, it was meant to be a book for the many women I saw around the country where I had been traveling as as an organizer for 20 years who were so smart and courageous and extraordinary and yet really lacked faith in themselves. So I started to go into bookshops and look to see what I could find to give to them because I believe in in bibliotherapy, you know. Um, But the books there were mostly very, um, only did half of it, I thought, you know, because they behaved as if you just changed yourself and everything was fine. And obviously that's not the case. We need to change the external world. It's that those systems of authority out there that very often undermine our authority in order to get us to obey them, in addition to whatever particular family experience we may have had growing up, which is, of course, not also disconnected from the mm-hmm. politics of, of overall life. So I began to feel very strongly that there needed to be what you might call a crossover book that is a book that um, did both halves of the revolution and made a spiral of change out of the internal and the external. I started it uh, after... Uh, we had uh, sold Ms. Magazine, and, uh, well, for a lot of reasons, I was just very tired after 20 years and so on, but I tried to put all that out of my mind and write this book, which I had contracted to do. The first thing the book knew that was smarter than I was was that it had to be for men, too, because men suffer to a lesser degree, by and large, but they're still missing their whole selves, the the, the so-called feminine human Mm -hmm. qualities, so... And, and also often have additional, you know, problems from childhood and have this, this impossibly perfect male role that is bound to instill uh, feelings of doubt. But even so, after I'd finished a couple hundred pages and showed them to a friend of mine who's a family therapist, she said to me, you know, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have a self-esteem problem. You forgot to put yourself in. And that was a, caused even more of a crisis, of course. You only need to tell a writer that they've written 200 of the wrong pages. And it had taken me a very long time, and I thought they were wonderful and mellifluous and full of semicolons and truths <laughs> and facts and so on. Um, and then I was started to go back and do it over and, and to to put myself in as well. Now, I think that, that perhaps if anybody's seen 
notices of this book in the media, you may think that it's entirely personal. It's only about 20% personal. The media tends to focus on the personal. But I thought it was important to put my personal learning points in there along with a wide, wide variety of other people's and and a lot of uh, material on what education does to us, what religion does to us, and so on, uh, in order to, to give people a place to plug in personally, not just to 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 my stories, which may or may not uh, be meaningful to people, but to a wide variety of, of parables, as I think of them. Last spring at the American Booksellers Convention in New York, Little Brown tossed you and Dan Rather and a couple other writers a very nice party up in the 59th floor or whatever it was. And I, I was there, and I saw these women coming up to you, approaching you as though... And I don't exaggerate, as though you were some sort of a, a godlike figure. You were, to them, you were a true heroine. I mean, you were somebody to to emulate in every way possible. And it must come as, as a surprise to learn that you were, had many of the same mm. self-esteem problems that these women may be suffering no, from. No, I don't think it does. You see, I think what makes us connect to each other in that way uh, is precisely that we tell the truth to each other. Mm-hmm. If I if I hadn't had the same experiences as many of the other women there and spoken out about them and vice versa, we wouldn't feel that kind of instant intimacy with each other. Uh, you know, I know that it's the style in, in a kind of authoritarian country, which I'm sorry to say, though it's a democracy in some ways, this country still is, to, to distance uh, people in public life and to make them seem perfect and separate. But that's part of authoritarianism, to make you feel that they do it, but you can't. And the the genius of social justice movements, whether it's the women's movement, the black movement, the Hispanic movement, the gay movement, whatever the movement is, the genius of it comes from people letting others know that you can do it. You're not, nobody's perfect. Uh, you, you know, we, we all share a lot of the, the same doubts and misgivings, but together we can support each other and we can make it happen. Is it disillusioning in any way, though, for, for women or men who look to you as the model of self-confidence and self-esteem to find out that, that while they had that image of you, the, the truth about mm-hmm. you was something, something else? Well, no one is, nobody said that to me, no. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that that's true because the whole... The, the whole point was, I mean, for instance, um, the when Ms. Magazine started, we put in the very first issue a list of prominent women, all of whom uh, came forward to say that they had had illegal abortions. In other words, they had had abortions during a period of time in this country when it was illegal. That was before the Roe v. Wade ruling, and so people were coming forward to um, make this honest statement and to say they demanded changes in the law. Um, That's how change gets made. My name was on that list. We were not disillusioned with each other. We were strengthened by each other. And similarly, you know, to say that uh, in a a society which puts men in the center and marginalizes women or puts white people in the center and marginalizes people of color and, you know, many other such examples... That it's you. You have an overall self-esteem problem. That is, the the people on the margins have a bigger problem, and the people in the people in the center have an impossible model of superiority to up to keep up, and therefore have somewhat of a problem themselves. To to say that, to share that, is exactly what makes change an intimate, you know, an intimate connection among people work. You know, Gandhi used to say 
that you cannot raise a people's self-esteem by placing yourself above them. And, you know, we, we really need to learn that. After this short break, Gloria Steinem's personal advice to me, the father of two daughters. Now back to my 1992 interview with Gloria Steinem. Is it your estimation that most women today have lost some or most of their self-esteem in childhood? Uh, well, I think mainly when the, f to ge I don't mean to generalize because everybody it, it, yeah, has it's a different difficult. experience, but, but I think it mainly, it, it happens um, especially when the female role arrives at about 11 or 12. Uh, little girls are often very uh, daring, smart, uh, courageous creatures and uh, very confident until they get to be about 11 and suddenly they're saying, I don't know, I'm not sure, it's probably only me, but, uh, and uh, gradually becoming female impersonators, so to speak, which is, you know, what the female role is. Carol Gilligan's research on this question is, is important and definitive. You know, she shows that at about 11 is that, is that turning point. Doesn't that happen to boys, though, too, about that age? No, because what happens with boys is, is a little different. I mean, they, um, they grow, you see, at exactly the time that boys are growing into more freedom as adolescents, girls are growing into less freedom. Even today? Even, well, again, I'm generalizing. It's not always true. Exactly. But, but it's still culturally true. And, and uh, for, for boys, the, um, the self-esteem problem comes both earlier and later. That is, when they, when they have to uh, distance themselves from their mothers and reject this person whom they love, and also reject qualities in themselves that are feminine, you know, crying and expressing emotion and so on, uh, that they begin to lose the whole self and feel something is wrong with part of themselves because it's decreed to be feminine. That usually happens a little earlier. But to correct that situation, that, that calls for a fundamental social change. You are, got it. Are we, re <laughs> are, 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 we moving, are we moving in that direction? Or? We are moving in that direction. We are moving in that direction. But I think that the importance of, of discussing self-esteem is to focus on the self-authority we need in order to challenge external authority, that it's a seamless web between internal and, and external. There's, um, there's an effort to, to say that accomplishment alone will give you self-esteem. Now, we all know that this is, although accomplishment is terribly important, it's not the whole answer. We have only to look at all the very, very successful rich and powerful men in the country or in the world for whom no amount of power and success is enough because nothing can convince them because they've got this empty or semi-self inside. Nothing can convince them that they are okay without all these accoutrements, which of course is the point, you know, of core self-esteem. So they, 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 it becomes almost an addiction, possessions. You know, they keep needing, needing, needing more and more. Anybody who needs proof, though, that one person can make a difference just needs to read the story of the chess team from Harlem. Isn't that a nice story? What a story yeah. that is. I'll, I'll try to do it briefly for the listeners. It's uh, a bunch of kids in Spanish Harlem who were brought together only because they needed to learn English. They came from Puerto Rico, Pakistan, many different countries. And the teacher 
who was doing this on his own entirely, with his own money, his own time, and with a lot of discouragement from, from his principal and his, his other teachers, decided to teach them chess because you don't need language for chess, and at least it would give them something that they could do together. Uh, because he, he focused on them and believed in them, um, and it's you know it's a it's a much longer story than this. But anyway, the end of the story is that these kids who were not chosen because they could play chess well at all, and who were growing up in a neighborhood that is like a third world country, and actually the mortality rate is higher than in many third world countries, um, with very little hope for the future. But because they had this one person in their life who ignited their self esteem, they soon actually surpassed him. I mean, they won some test tournaments and so on, and then and they they their aspirations went even further. They said, "Well, why can't we go to the Soviet Union, which is the chess capital of the world, and play in the in the junior chess championships?" And he, of course, was then challenged, and so he raised money and got them there, and they did very well there. Not not the least because they recognized finally, although they were very um, unconfident at first, that they had a unique. Uh, skill, which was speed chess. You know, they were street-smart kids, so they knew how to play speed chess, unlike the slow, deliberate style that the Soviets were accustomed to. And they could, you know, they found their niche. In other words, their true selves, not their imitative selves, mm-hmm. you know, was an advantage even even in chess. But it, but it also shows how it, how it builds on itself. You, you start with some self-esteem and build on that, and that begins to... And now, exactly. now, now they're thinking of becoming lawyers and, yes. and going into computers. Yes, and, it was and so moving to go and talk to them. And not only that, but they had really pledged each other their support for life. And they were, they'd become a, a kind of alternate family for each other and, and were encouraging each other to take risks. And even though they were worried about separating themselves to, to go off to other schools. Now, it's, if, if there's one thing that I've learned, you know, while talking to people and reading and doing this book, it's it's that... We don't really know what our limits are, you know, because we, we've, we've had such uh, boundaries put around us by these labels of class, sex, race, whatever, and, and also by, by the way kids are raised in, in hierarchical families, which often means, or with a lot of violence, uh, a lot of violence. I don't think we've even begun to uncover how much violence there is directed towards kids and how much sexual abuse toward kids. And when you're treated badly as a child, you think you're a bad person. Then there's the so-called liberal school of child-rearing, which says you can write anything on a child as if she or he were a blank slate, which is also untrue. What seems to be the truth is that there is a unique combination of millennia of, of heredity and, and environment and everything, you know, within each child. Uh, and the point is to, to honor that character and interest and so on and help that person develop. Alice Walker has a lovely line in one of her poems, which is, the nature of this flower is to bloom. What, what advice could you give to a father who has two daughters, one of whom is 11 and a half and the other is nine and a half, and they are at that, that age that you were speaking of a moment ago, or the, at least the older one is, where she has bounded into these first 11 and a half years full of confidence, and now she'll be going to junior high next fall. She's not sure what she's going to be able to do there. Many of her friends will be different. The classes will be different. The pressure is tougher. They've told her that. What can I do? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, the most important thing is pretty simple, and it's to let her know that you love her as she is, that she is unique and okay 
and you might criticize her sometimes because you need to, but by saying something like, you know, I love you, but I don't always love the things you do, separate the, the, the deed from the child so she doesn't ever think she's a bad person, and separate the culture from her a little bit. Say, look, I know there are all these pressures out there, and there are a lot of people who think little, you think girls have to do this, and you have to start dating when you're, you know, and so on. Um, and, you know, some people can do that and other people may not want to. But the point is to find out what you want to do and, and let me help you do it. And, you know, just to support her as a unique person. When we look back at our childhoods, um, if there, as there is for, for most of us, given the way, you know, kids are raised at the moment, hopefully not always, uh, if there are things that um, we wanted and needed and didn't get, some part of us may remain that age. If we didn't get what we needed at 10, some, parts of us, some part of us remains 10. So it's, it, it's very important that we look at that and understand the source of it, and instead of acting it out in our adult life in a, some self-destructive way, to go back and, and, uh, and raise up that child, become that child's parent. And one simple way to, to, to enter this kind of thinking is to sort of think to yourself what it was that you needed when you were uh, a little boy or a little girl and your family couldn't give you for whatever reason. And think about that for a bit. And that's probably the list of things that you should do for yourself. Gloria Steinem will be 88 next March but she is still active as an organizer and a lecturer. You know, you can find all of our past episodes of Now I've Heard Everything at our website, heardeverything.com. That's where you'll find, for example, my 1993 interview with the central figure in Roe versus Wade, the woman whose lawsuit led to that ruling, Norma McCorvey. Come here and I said, let me talk to you. I said, by the way, I said, my name's Norma McCorvey. I said, but you may better know me as Jane Roe of Roe versus Wade. And my 2002 interview with another woman whose name has pretty much become a household name, Erin Brockovich. We never thought, gee, it's going to settle for $333 million. I mean, are you kidding me? Let alone a movie be made about it. Julia Roberts is going to play me. They're going to name it after me. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, one of the NFL's greatest players of all time talks about the history of the National Football League. Do you know it's over 100 years old now? My 1994 interview with former Chicago Bears middle linebacker Dick Butkus. See, that's what amazes me about this legend business, because uh, I, I just think what I did was normal. I just always felt, well, you know, this is the way you play the game. I don't think I've ever played a perfect game. I, I would never settle for it. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.